Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Tonight, which is a difficult topic, um, talking about trying to get it right, Israel, Aliyan racism in 1952-56. As you're going to see over here, by racism, I mean Jew on Jew. Jewish racism against other Jews. Um, Israel before, let me get, start right into it. Israel before 48, Israel before 1948, the Jewish population is overwhelmingly Ashkenazic. There are some Sephardim, but it's overwhelmingly Ashkenazic. But that's because of the Gucci Aliyah that I've called in the past. Meaning that the people in charge of deciding who should get into Israel, particularly after the First World War, with the World Zionist Organization, they want to cherry pick who gets in. Um, we've talked about it a great deal in the past, but the bottom line is they want the right types to get in, and the right types are going to be Ashkenazic Jews, usually Central and Eastern European. Uh, they'd love to get Western European if they can, and uh, people with a certain type of um, Zionist indoctrination. Uh, the theory behind it is, what's the point of bringing a million, uh, let's put it this way, a million Satmar Hasidim in if they'll, if they'll be against Israel? I mean, that's the idea. But it's also true, what's the point of bringing in uneducated Jews from the Eidot Mizrach? We're not going to do anything. You see, they wanted the, it's a certain eugenics. It's uh, sad in some ways, but, but nevertheless it happened. The result is, as I said before, you had a highly artificial and very interesting um, sociological profile of the Yeshuv, as they call it, prior to 1940 or up to 1948, uh, in which, as I say before, the vast majority of people are, uh, are uh, Ashkenazic. Uh, many, many, as many as they can get, are socialists. Because they've been cherry picked again in exactly what this is, because the people in charge of the immigration process were socialists in, in, in the majority. And, uh, you know, you have that kind of thing. So it's a very um, sort of homogenous in a certain way kind of community, uh, racially, ethnically, uh, culturally. This is up to 48. Uh, everybody participates in new Ivrit culture. They don't want any Yiddish type people who want to keep Yiddishism going, and, you know, they don't let you in. It is what it is. However, um, as we know, things will change after 48 was one of the most revolutionary things that happens in May 14, 1940, is not simply the establishment of the state of Israel, but the opening of the doors of Israel to everybody as long as you're Jewish. So they can't anymore after that say, we only want a certain type of Jew. Uh, actually, they'll take anybody they can get, because Israel's desperate for population. Uh, they don't have a policy of encouraging, even today, they don't have a policy of encouraging a baby boom. And um, just as the simplest said, they'll all build small apartments for everybody, which is the government's way in every country in the world of trying to say, keep it small. And uh, they, but they want to grow the population through Aliyah. There's going to be Aliyah of the right type of people, as they quote, quote no, I'm wrong. It's not going to be Aliyah of the right type of people. That went out with the Holocaust. Since Hitler killed all those types, we need whoever we can get. We'll take everybody in at one time. Do remember that Israel was founded by a movement. Israel uh, <laughs> is, is unusual in this regard. Usually you have a country, and then the country forms parties. I'll give you an example. There's something called the United States which came to be, and George Washington was elected. And after that, they started the Federalists and the Republicans and things like that. There was a country called England. Eventually, had the liberals and the conservatives, so to speak. In Israel, the parties were there before Israel, and they created Israel. And the Zionist movement did so. And the Zionist movement was founded and run overwhelmingly by Ashkenazic Jews. I mean, these guys are all born in in, in Hungary, uh, Russia, Russia. And and that's absolutely typical for... um, the profile of the Zionist leaders. Ben Gurion's born in Poland, for example. Uh, just, by the way, for historical accuracy's sake, 
Both the Ashkenazic as well as the Sephardi Jews, I mean the Jews from Spain, came to Israel, arrived in Israel more or less the same time. It's not like they were here first or we were there before them. Uh, prior to 1492, where did the Sephardi Jews live? In Sephardi, in Spain. We kind of forget that. Okay? And uh, only after 1492 did they begin to begin to begin a slow trickle from Spanish Jews. Most of the Spanish Jews left to Spain and didn't go to uh, Israel. They went to other parts of the Middle East, what they call the Ottoman Empire, the Turks to be exact, conquered what we call the Middle East in 1517 to 1520. So, you know, in those years, things were turning uh, all over. But the beginning of the Sephardi Aliyah is, is around that time. Same thing with the Ashkenaz, right? For a number of reasons, pietists and people like that, uh, in small numbers, moved from Germany, even Poland, in the 1500s. They all came there more or less at the same time. Um, who was there beforehand? Don't even ask. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that all during the 1500s and the 1600s and into the 1700s until the late 1700s, it's pretty much in tandem. You see? There are Ashkenazic Jews moving there from, from Central and Eastern Europe, a few. There are some Sephardic Jews moving. There's not a mass of people. Yerushalayim, for example, once upon a time, I remember, had like 1,000 Jews altogether, 900,000 Jews. It is what it is. There were times when there were more Ashkenazic Jews, times there were less, times there were more Sephardic. It's a whole constant story over there. Now it's not time to go into it, but more or less the same thing. However, starting, interestingly, in the 1700s with the rise of the Hasidic movement, uh, you begin to see uh, the beginnings of a serious Ashkenazic Aliyah, small numbers, but nevertheless uh, serious coming in bunches from the 1770s, and when the first Hasidim came there, then the Misnagdim showed up, what they called the Prushim, they're still there today, both groups, and that, of course, begins what we know is an increasing number of Jews, both Ashkenaz and Sephardi, but little by little, predominantly Ashkenaz, um, especially with the rise of the Chovetzin and the Zionist movement. And so, you know, it's, it's not exactly in 100% in tandem, but, but very much, uh, or roughly so. Officially, officially, Zionism has always been a liberal movement, uh, completely opposed to all forms of discrimination. Theodore Herzl was what we would call today a liberal Democrat. That's what he was by his political philosophy. Okay? He writes that way, he was that way, and all that. And the Zionist movement could never have gotten off the ground, especially in Western Europe, if it never presented itself as a liberal democratic movement. However, despite this official stance, in reality there was discrimination towards non-Ashkenazim on a number of levels, from the beginning. What I'm trying to say is like this. Officially, the Zionist movement and all of its organs are opposed, and they really were, to any kind of discrimination, one type of Jew and another. But culture is important, and culture predominates over everything else. And we know that whatever the law books say on the law books, it's what people do in terms of actual culture that, that, that guides what happens in, in, in the real world. And so already 100 years ago, um, literally 100 years ago, in uh, one of the uh, important early Zionists, Eastern European guy, a guy named Shmuel uh, Yavneli over here, that's what he really looks like, and this way he disguised himself, goes to Yemen because, well, he came with a certain group very early on in Ben-Gurion's time, the very, very early 1900s. There weren't many at that time. And they start to go and they try to build a kibbutz or a moshav or something like that, or some kind of a farm, when Avery Hayardin of all places. And it's just so hard, and the work is so difficult. And we European Jews can't do this. And what are you going to do to solve the problem? And they don't want to bring in Arab laborers who are all over the place or a dime a dozen, literally. Because the whole point is trying to think something Jewish. And so what are you going to do? The best thing to do is find Arab Jews or dark Jews or, you know, that sort of... And he goes to Yemen. He In Yemen, and he's not from, take a look at him. But you can't go anywhere in Yemen in 1910 or 1912 if you're not from, they don't even know what that is. So go explain it to them. So he dresses himself up over there. I think he even got 35 shilas from Ralph Cook, who gave Nast to the rabbis in Yemen, so he has a mission to go to. He faked it out, and he promised him pie in the sky. 
And so you make Aliyah, come to Israel, you'll be taken care of, all your religious needs will be done. And so but the real reality was they wanted them to come and do Arab work. You understand? They were taking advantage of them. Uh, and they came there, and you can look it up yourself if you're interested in this sad episode, but it's emblematic. Uh, they come there. But first of all, the work is really rough. The pay is much lower. The two scales of, of pay. Now, I thought, according to officially, it's a socialism. Everybody's supposed to be equal pay, all the rest of it. That's in theory. <laughs> you understand? But in reality, it, it, like I said before, culture predominates everything. It's a sad story, but I'm doing this for a reason. Right? This has been there from day one, long before the state of Israel came forward. This is before the First World War. And also, they were promised, because they're Yemenite Jews, that they'll have a synagogue and kashras and all the rest of it, and that doesn't happen either. And eventually, it's like the American Indians, they give a piece of land, but it's near an Ashkenazic settlement, and over the course of time, the Ashkenazim push them out and kick them out and take over the land. It's up there. It's not the Ganya, but it's one of those places up, up near, the Gal, uh, in the, near the Canaret. And it's a sad story, and it goes to show you that, um, unfortunately, if we're being honest about it, and, and you know, I'm telling you, this is a predominantly Ashkenazic audience. This is the, the others know about it. I mean, the, the Spartan, they're, they're quite aware of this history. You understand? But we prefer, you know, not to uh, dwell on it. Um, but it is what it is. I mean, they won't even let the Yemenite Jews, once one settlement over, be buried in their cemetery. Okay? And this is a Jew on Jew, I want to remind you. Okay? And how do you have that? They pick up the, the European racism, whatever you, I mean, I don't want to blame on anybody else, because it's our fault. But you pick up these attitudes, and you get it, and you get it in there. After 1920, when the, after the First World War, the Jewish agency controls the certificates, as I told you, this is the system under the British, right? There was the First World War, the Balfour Declaration, and after the First World War, the mandate was given by the League of Nations to Great Britain to administer Palestine. They're in charge. And the, uh, it says in the League of Nations uh, chart, in the Treaty of San Remo, uh, which was an international treaty, which, which still operates in law. The Arabs don't like it, but it's still there in law. And that is that the British have an official mandate from the League of Nations, which it was the UN at that time, to administer Palestine. And... Including that is the language of the Balfour Declaration. The British are supposed to uh, work for the development of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, provided nothing is done to hurt the Arabs. That's the language that's used over there. So in that context, the World Zionist Organization, which is Weizmann and the, uh, and the others, they uh, cut a deal with the British that they control who comes into Palestine, and all the, they all go for Ashkenazim, you know, overwhelmingly, except for a few selected Spartan. When I say selected Spartan, if the right type, and you'll become Ashkenazis, <laughs> whatever the word is, Okay, so you'll go in on a kibbutz, or you'll go into something like this, or uh, you'll go to university. You know, we want the right type, as it were. Right? And, and, and it is uh, what it is. Now, I'm using the word Sephardim over here, and that's because that's how I grew up, and that's kind of what we're all used to. As you'll see in Israel, the currently politically correct term is Mizrahim, although tonight's from the Mizrahi, so you've got to watch out the Mizrahi is a religious Zionist. But in Israel, it doesn't mean that anymore. The Mizrahi means, Mizrahi means an Oriental Jew. And by that I mean... If you just use the word Spartan, as I'm going to, incorrectly, he says, you just use the, the word Spartan, these are Jews that came from Spain. So that could be Montefiore, <laughs> correct? And if you're living in a palace in Bevis Marks in London, you could have the uh, wealthy Jews of Amsterdam, can't you? Or of Rome, or for that matter, of, uh, you know, the, anybody here from Vienna, Austria, you know, they had a very wealthy Turkish-Jewish community over there. These are highly Europeanized Jews, whatever their ethnic origins are. So that's not who they're trying to discriminate against. You follow? If a Dutch Jew with a Spanish name wants to move to Tel Aviv in the 1920s, that's fine. You see? If a British Jew or Gibraltar or somebody like that wants to, that's fine. They're talking about the other group, right? Who's that? You know, the Arab countries. It's Iraq. It's Iran. It's Yemen. 
it's Egypt and, and, and Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia and Libya and all that sort. What about the Turkish Jews? Well, you know, 50-50. And that's the attitudes that go, that go over there. Now, um, the rationale, as I told you before, behind this highly selective process, which wasn't hidden, was that the Ashkenazim have the requisite ideology and the Western education necessary for building a Jewish state. After it's built, the others can come. And it's a patronizing, but it's an understandable idea in the 1920s and 30s, and then during the, the, the 40s, also the Holocaust years, which is, these guys don't know how to do We'll build a whole country, and then they'll come. And what's the problem? I'm, I'm, I'm doing the work for you. You see? And so, uh, in reality, of course, uh, it's not true that they don't... I mean, racism is, is what it is. It's not actually accurate. Uh, there are many Sephardim, if you want to get down to it, who, um, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and those years... Uh, in, especially the upper classes, in Middle Eastern urban centers who have as much education as the Ashkenazim and more. If you go to Jews who live in Cairo, uh, who live in uh, Casablanca even, and in uh, Tunis, which was the capital of the French colony of, 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 of Tunisia, of Algeria, I mean, some of the most famous French intellectuals, like Derrida and others, are, are Jews, Sephardic Jews, who were Frenchified, Gallicized as it were, and went to elite schools in Algeria and Iran and places like that, uh, same thing with Libya, there, if you want to get down to, uh, what are the times in Tripoli and so forth, um, these are places written out in connection with Gaddafi, but 100 years ago it was under Italy, Italian colonies. There were plenty of Jews there who had a very good education and, and all the rest of it, but they're the wrong type, you understand? And that's how it goes. Anyway, after the show, after the Holocaust, the plain reality is that Israel's going to have to rely on us for immigration, as I told you before. And indeed, Israel doubled its population in 48 to 51. 1948, 49, 1551. That's something we did last year, remember? Okay, they doubled the population, and half of the, uh, they were 650, and they doubled it to, uh, what is that, uh, 1,300. So 1, 1,300,000 in three years. Okay, just think of what that means. And as we saw last year, they weren't ready. But, but half the Olim, 300,000, were Sephardic. 50,000 Jews from Yemen, for example, uh, 120,000 Jews, 150,000 Jews from uh, um, Iraq, it was uh, 40,000 Jews from Libya. He's all part of this original wave over here. And uh, housing, we saw last year, was very short. Uh, food was very short. Jobs were very short. Who gets first hired and who gets last hired? Who gets, if there are houses to go out, who gets the houses and who does not? Who ends up in the Mabara if there's a matter of choice? And you're a bureaucrat working for the Israeli government, the Mapai Party, or for the Histadrut, or for the Jewish agency, or any of these kind of things. You're naturally going to be predisposed. I mean, it's going to happen. You're going to give the good stuff to people like you and the bad stuff to those people because what are they used to anyway? They're used to living in, in terrible quarters and conditions. They're animals. That, that, that's the attitude. And uh, it's pretty sad. As I say before, about 300,000 Sephardi Jews uh, make uh, Aliyah during those years. After, in the years I'm talking about tonight, the numbers are small. Look at this. Here's Israel, 48, 100,000, quarter of a million almost in 49 in one year. 170,000 over here, another 170,000. This year they brought in 150,000 from Libya and, and, uh, and Iraq in one year. And all of a sudden Israel finds it's overwhelmed, like we saw last year. They can't handle the housing. There's not enough food to go around. It's the, you know, the, the jobs, forget about it. The crime is crazy, all the rest of it. And so an unspoken kind of consensus forms in the Mapai leadership, which is we can't do this anymore. And look at the numbers, 25,000, 11,000, 18,000. 37, that's already big, and by 56, they're starting to get back. This is the Polish Aliyah I told you about last week when that communist guy in Poland made a special pass. So we're going to make bigger numbers because, after all, these are 
quote unquote European Jews moving in. Okay, these are Russian, these are Unzera, right? They, they, these are Polish and Russian Jews moving in. Numbers kind of make a difference, don't they, if you know how to interpret them. Okay? But it's interesting that in the years I'm talking about, 52 to 56, very small Aliyah. And that's because we swallowed too much. And even though Ben-Gurion is still running around all of America saying all the American Jews have to make Aliyah and all the rest of it, but he knew as well as anybody else is just talking, and they're not going to come in any large numbers. And right now Israel doesn't have the food. And right now Israel certainly does not have the housing. And right now certainly Israel doesn't have the jobs to offer them. And what do you do with a huge population of unemployed people? You tell me what happens in a society when there's thousands, tens of thousands, maybe more, of young people who are unemployed. You're going to make it, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to end up, well, not revolutions when you have a leadership. You end up with crime. Look, you've got to make a living somehow. Or other. Um, and that's how it goes. As I said before, the unspoken consensus in the Mapai was go easy on immigration um, because, let's put it this way, the government was always making excuses and it's not their fault and so forth. And, you know, all these guys have uh, all the excuses in the world. And, and you want to know something? Sometimes the excuses are right. It doesn't matter if you're suffering. Correct? If, if you haven't had a house this year or next year or the next year or next year, who cares what they say? They're a bunch of liars. That, that's how you feel. Get it? If, if the system isn't working for you, then self, what's the right word? Self-serving, uh, you know, rationales are, are, are useless and, and they mean nothing. Um, I mean, that's true for all of us. If you need something and somebody doesn't do it and they have an excuse, you don't care. Correct? You go to someone else if you can. As I told you before, the consensus was go easy on immigration. Immigration, excuse me. And instead, what happens in 52, which is all last year, is uh, they start to get the money from Germany. Okay? Right now, and, and what I'm saying is not exactly wrong from a strictly economic point of view. Use the money we're getting, the billion dollars that we're going to be getting in, in, in installments. That's what they got, a billion. Um, to build infrastructure, okay? Um, roads, uh, number of schools, um, communication, um, you know, things like that, harbors, air, airports, uh, factories, uh, buy the kind of equipment that's necessary to kickstart an economy. Uh, all these, in other words, use, they don't use the German money to build houses for the people that's suffering in the Marlboro Road. They stay there. They use the money for important things, okay? Because you have to look at the future, that's how they say it. And what about the human suffering over there? No. <laughs> you know that's how it goes. So uh, that's why you have the small aliyah. But there are all those people that have arisen now in the country with large numbers who are radically dissatisfied with the system, and rightly so. I told you before, excuses don't work. And especially when there's blatant discrimination along ethnic lines. Okay? It becomes too much to say that you're coming up with a bunch of very good reasons, all of which kind of work for you. And none of those reasons work for me. I've got problems when you have wonderful reasons that coincidentally always work out for you. It never hurts your car. It never hurts your house, right? Nothing ever affects the ability of your children to get into good schools. It only affects the ability of my children to get into good schools. I don't like that kind of rationale. You know? If I'm not good at baseball, I'd rather play football. I don't like to play baseball anymore if, it's not, if, it, if it never works for me. Um, Zionist rhetoric certainly doesn't work if you're stuck here and shafted by the system. So Ben-Gurion makes all these speeches and says you should be lucky to be here and we've taken you out of anti-Semitic environments and if you're back in the Arab world there'd be pogroms. I don't want to hear that. It's bloody because it doesn't hurt. But, you know. Ben-Gurion's not suffering. They're suffering. Ben-Gurion doesn't have a, a problem getting his kids or grandchildren into a school. They do. And so nobody wants to hear that anymore. 
It's in this period, by the way, the word Zion has become the dirty word in Israel. Afi knows this. You've got Tzionut, means just bloviating, you know, blah, 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 and, and, and all this sort of thing. For the most part, um, it wasn't even true. For the most part, the Sephardim, where they done them as rough, did not live in radical poverty in their native lands. It's not true that the Jews in Iraq were all starving. Not a, not a bit of it. It's not true that all the Jews in Iran or Libya or North Africa had been starving. Not a bit of it. Like everywhere else. There were poorer Jews, there were middle-class Jews, and there were upper-class Jews. Obviously, the upper-class is nothing to talk about. But the middle-class Jews, think about, think what I'm about to tell you. A guy's an accountant, a successful accountant in Damascus or in uh, Tunis or in uh, Baghdad. You got accountants here, you got accountants over there. A guy could be an attorney. There were. In Iran or in Tunisia or in Egypt. And you had them in Israel in, in, in a shack. And the, and, and the official who's bossing you around, all the rest of it, doesn't have the education that you have. Do, do you understand the distance? You, you understand the poison that's been created by this uh, reality over here? Uh, they don't really fit the primitive image self-servingly assigned to them in Zionist Ashkenazic discourse. Because that's a very self-serving kind of discourse. To say, you're getting uh, nothing special because you're not even used to anything better than this. And, and, and there you have it. Well, uh, so what happens? Israel does not really devise a solution for them in the 50s. For all but the younger generation, Israel never will. If you're middle-aged or older, and you make all that to Israel in the 50s, forget about it. It's never going to get better. In the 60s, 70s, it doesn't get better. Um, sadly, Israel never will for a very large portion of the younger generation either. You see, if at least... That's this American story, isn't it? The parents worked in a sweatshop, but the kid went to city college and became a, a lawyer or a doctor or something like that. You have the magic of education. Educational opportunity is quite limited in Israel, especially in the 50s and 60s. In the 50s, for example, it was a grand total of one university with a limited number of seats, and you tell me who's going to get in. Okay? These are the realities over there. And so uh, the result is the creation of a huge underclass, profoundly conflicted, concerning the state of Israel. They are Jewish. They don't like the Arabs. Because <laughs> the Arabs were banned to them back in the other country. And the Arabs were very anti-Semitic. They still are. Um, there, is a, there is, you know, you're always living in a rough, roughly dangerous kind of area where you're living Arabs. Now you're in Israel. You kind of like the fact that everybody else is Jewish, sort of. And, and you have pride. They have a Medina Israel, especially when there's an Israeli army. And, you know, they take pride in all that. And yet, at the other hand, Things are so bad. <laughs> what does it do? So I love and I hate the country. And everybody has to work that out in their own minds the best they can. Um, but there was no underclass in 1948. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Prior to the establishment of Israel, none of this existed. It's not like in some of these countries where you say, oh, the poverty's been there forever. It just takes longer to uh, get rid of it in some countries. It takes longer than others. And so on in the classic you know, uh, liberal uh, or socialist model which is the country has been characterized by poverty for centuries and centuries. Little by little, we're bringing the, the urban poor and the, uh, the, the uh, what you call it, the, the peasantry. You know. There was no such thing prior to 1948, and all of a sudden there is. Um, so it means Israel obviously seriously failed in this particular regard. This reality frightens the heck out of the Ashkenazi elite on many levels. Uh, first of all, there's just the good old-fashioned plain racism. It brings out all the worst aspects of it. I mentioned this last year, but here's a text from the Haaretz, from the report, Ari Gelblum, who is right, he writes this in the paper, you know, where, where in, in 49 and 50, when he sees all these people coming to Mavara, I'm sorry, this is Abba Iman, excuse me, uh, yeah, beforehand, 
the great spokesman, what does he say? One of the great apprehensions is the predominance of immigrants of Oriental origins, forcing Israel to equalize its cultural level of those in the neighboring world. <laughs> that, that's, that's a very politically correct thing to say. <laughs> Would you agree with that? Right? No, you want to know something, but so why do you say in public? Because the answer is in the Israel of the 50s, you could say it. There, there are no negative consequences to it. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? This is like taking for granted. He doesn't mean to be racist. He thinks that's the way it is. The Sephardim, well, we all know what that is. They might drag us down. That was the Nebuch. We had to take so many in. I'm unfortunate they're Jewish and the Holocaust killed the Ashkenazi. Well, you know, we're, we're stuck over here. But they could be our, our downfall. Whoa. Is that true? Is, is there really a genetic predisposition one and the other? There is not. Not really. And so what is it? Um, let's take a look. This is from one of the leading reporters of Israel at that time. This is the immigration of a race who we, we have not known in the country we're dealing with people whose primitivism at peak level of knowledge is of virtual absolute ignorance. This is, and we have a little talent for understanding anything intellectual. Can you imagine this? Okay. Uh, generally, they're slightly better than the general level of the Arabs, the Negroes, and the Berbers in the same region. In any case, they're even lower level than what we know in regard to the former Arabs of it. Whoa. Okay. These Jews also lack roots in Judaism. <laughs> this Spartan lack roots in Judaism? I can guarantee you they know ten times more by Yiddish guys than this guy does. So, but look, but, but, but I'm just trying to show you culture is more important than words or rhetoric or anything else. It's the kind of thing you take in at the basic gut level, which, which sometimes spills out in the public. These Jews lack roots in Judaism, totally subordinated, savage, primitive instincts. As with Africans, you will find among them gambling, drunkenness, prostitution, chronic laziness, hatred for work. There's nothing safe about social up and keep it seeming out here about the absorption. I mean, the next step is to shoot him. I mean, you know, if, if, if you go by this rhetoric, okay, and I repeat, this is Jew about Jew. And this is in the newspaper, and by the way, it's in Haaretz, which is the New York Times. So, oh, look at this. Now, you understand why you're going to have a profound conflictedness if you're a Mizrahi Jew, if you're a Jew from Iraq or from Egypt, and you read this kind of stuff in the paper, and say, who are you talking about, me? Right, talk about you? Um... Ben-Gurion also says they lack a Jewish education and a general education. Does Sfarim lack a Jewish education? Maybe Ben-Gurion knew the Bible because that was the thing he was into. I guarantee anything outside the Bible, you know, the average Sephardi Jew knows uh, ten times better than him. If you've ever been to a Sephardi synagogue, they used to do all the Davani Bahar, just to give you an example. I mean, you know, little things like that. Does Ben-Gurion actually know what to do in Shavuos? You know, but as I said before, that's not what he means by Jewish education. These are cultural matters. Golda Meir, right? She said, what are they complaining about? When they came off this country, came off the, the ship, they didn't know how to use a knife and a fork. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> That's nice. Um, one of the worst examples, you, you ain't seen, and my friends, you, you haven't seen anything yet. Um, one of the worst examples, in fact, the worst, worst example of the anti-Sephardi, anti-Mizrahi discrimination involves a book that was published a few years later in 64. Culmination of all these feelings is a crystallization of I don't want to be misunderstood here, so I'll say, oh, the Jewish Nazi attitude. And, and, and you'll see in a minute, I'm not exaggerating, unfortunately. Um, there was a book called The Mapechash Kenazit. You can Google it, by the way, and if you have Hebrew Google, you remember Mapechash Kenazit? means Ashkenazi Revolution, revolution uh, by a writer named Kalman Katznelson. And this is the Katznelson family, is one of the central families in, in the founding of the uh, Israel and Zionist movement. One of them was the head of the uh, Hadassah medical uh, outfit, and one was the head of this. Uh, remember I told you two weeks ago, Shmuel Tamir uh, was the uh, lawyer for, against Kastner, 
Shmuel Katzinelson. It's a very, uh, you know, what, what we call the Mayflower families of the, of the Zionist Aliyah, in which the author argues that the Oriental Jews, listen to this, uh, suffer from an irreversible genetic inferiority that endangers the superiority of the Ashkenazi Zionist state. He called for the establishment of an apartheid regime that, among other limitations, would abolish their political rights. He also objected to mixed marriages and demanded the prohibition of the Hebrew language because it resembled Arabic too greatly. Instead, he demanded that Yiddish become the national language because of its supreme Germanic origins. His book became a bestseller until Ben-Gurion had it banned. Okay, because we're doing too well. You follow? Now, and I just want to tell you something. He's a revision, he's a Jabotinsky. Even though Jabotinsky was not like this, but he had, Jabotinsky had a movement running from the extreme right to the extreme left. On the extreme right, they really were Nazis. I mean, I know, I know it sounds like I'm being pejorative, but I know what I'm talking about, unfortunately. Okay? And uh, these are people who were there from the beginning. Of the, he, he makes Aliyah at a young age, born in 1907. He's a writer who only died a few years ago, and he repeated this in, in later things, and he did, uh, I mean, you just Google it yourself, and it's disgusting. How does a Jew talk like this about other Jews? But they do. You see? And so, as they say before, by the way, don't think I'm, I'm sharing any secrets with you that nobody else knows about. The other side knows all this stuff. You can find it all in Palestinian publications, in Arab publications. They're fully aware. It's we who don't know about us. Now, naturally, they're going to zero in on whatever's negative among the Jews, but we have. Okay? So I'm sharing with this to you that, that you should know. Um, now, Jabotinsky himself, by the way, whose father he said he was, was completely different. Um, in fact, his supporters always argue that Jabotinsky's uh, motto was Kol Yehudi Melech. Okay? And he had great sympathy with the Sephardim, and they liked him too. And he visited the Sephardi countries in the 20s and the 30s and all that sort of thing. And he had, he had a lot of following over there. And he was, for all Jews, you know, without discrimination. And I think he actually had more uh, acquaintance with them than many of the other uh, Zionist leaders. And um, as I say before, he, you know, he, didn't ha- he didn't have this kind of attitude um, but he did not represent the overall uh, culture, the majority uh, political culture, and certainly the people who had the political power and the majority of the votes was in the uh, left wing. And even though the left wing is absolutely committed, seriously, to, I mean, really, to equality and all that, uh, that's true in theory and one day. But right now we're going to have, the way we have it here, we'll have a Jim Crow. Um, I, I repeat, the government of Israel really was genuinely committed that eventually everything should work out, and there should be no more racism, there should be complete equality in uh, the jobs and in the uh, positions from top to bottom and all the rest of it. But as I told you before, culture dominates everything in society. And after all, in the Israel of the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, down to the year 2013, there are always a limited number of, uh, of good jobs. And they all go to Ashkenazi. They did in the 50s and they do today. As part of what I was looking up yesterday, the last two days, for this, you go online, now everything's there. They have these uh, uh, Israeli shows uh, from the news. It's like I said before, it's like the equivalent of 60 Minutes. I don't know what they call it, but it's called Panim, uh, not Panim Mazbi Road, but Panim Amitiyot. It's the equivalent of 60 Minutes. And they have a four-part series, that's four hours, on uh, racism in Israel society. And it's all in Ivritz. I can't uh, share most of it with you. Otherwise, I would, because I didn't even have subtitles, because uh, most of you wouldn't understand it. But it's a very penetrating... Uh, kind of uh, business, or just what I said before. It, it, in the Supreme Court of Israel, it's all Ashkenazi, always one seat for a Sephardi. One. Okay? And the Sephardi they have currently is not really Sephardi. I mean, his ancestry go back, is highly Europeanized. 
you see? Uh, all the newspapers, um, all the presidents of universities, of all the professors in Israel, the whole professorate in Israel, all the universities, 9% is Sephardim, 91% Ashkenaz. You have these kind of numbers, which in America would be a scandal, and be a, a Supreme Court case. Right? And it goes on and on, and I'm just sharing it a little bit, but I remember what, what, what the guy was rattling off the statistics and things like this, and the, the point of the show was, which the show was last year or, or, or very recently, is everybody says it went out in the 50s, but hey, it did not. Um, now, I'm going somewhere with this, as, as you'll see later on, not, not just uh, simply have to uh, complain, but, and you'll see where I'm going with this in a little while. Um, but there are, in, in these kind of countries, it's not like America, which is, quote-unquote, unlimited number of jobs out there. At least we pride ourselves in that. I don't know if it's really like that. Marty will tell us. But in, in, um, in, in, uh, across the United States, if you go from all over the place, you, you should be able to find something if you're willing to move. Um, Israel's very small, as you all know. And uh, it's very top-down. And uh, there really are very small numbers, relatively speaking, of uh, opportunities out there. Uh, the worst is... Uh, there are a very small number in the 1950s and 60s particularly, very small number of, of, of high schools. Uh, not many at all, and they all go to Ashkenazi, almost all of them do. And that still is the case of any decent Ashkenazi. You want to know the saddest thing? Uh, this is, I'm just taking from this, uh, from this YouTube, from this show. The guy, listen to this, the reporter who is Amnon Levy, he's Sephardi by background, but he's Ashkenazi. He's, he's a rare exception of a guy who's made it through. And he's you know, the one doing this report. And here's the saddest part. He goes to Kiryat Malachi, if anybody knows what it is, and it's a Sephardi type area, and he talks to a bunch of Sephardi kids, kids, in, you know, 12 years old, something like that, boys in a, a school. And, um, and he's talking, they're recording this conversation. And, you know, who's better, the Ashkenazi Sephardi? Oh, the Ashkenazi much better than us. You see? What do you want to be when you grow up? A policeman, a plumber, something like this. What about a doctor? Oh, that's for Ashkenazi, they're smarter than us. You see? In other words, it's, it's been absorbed by the youth as a reflection of reality, which is very, very sad. And by, that's in 2011 or 2012, that this, what, I, what I just told you. So it is what it is. Um, the denial of secondary education in the 1950s is really the biggest crime. Um, because education is, is the liberator. We all agree on that. It certainly has been true in, in American history. It's been true in the history of Jews every, everywhere. It's the liberator. And... Uh, Strictly from a point of view of pure economics, without any other cultural matter in there, the most important resource that a country has is the human capital. When you take a huge part of the population and you cut them off from a possible better education, uh, you're, you're ruining your own human capital. And you're hurting yourself. And to put it in simple terms, who knows which Friday kid could, could end up finding Israel's solution I know, to, to, you know, to cancer or to oil or, 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 or whatever, you know, some, some great breakthrough to put it in those kind of terms, and it didn't happen. Uh, it sets a pattern for the non-academic secondary education that predominates among the Sephardim that lives till today. They go to a Beit Sefer Mitzoe, which is, like I said before, a trade school and that sort of thing. Most Sephardim go to those sort of things. It's a very sad and inefficient use of human capital, but it serves to, produce, it, it serves to preserve an Ashkenazi cloud. In other words, if it's still going on in the year 2013, somebody's benefiting by it. Nothing is ever set up if somebody's not benefiting from it. Is that true? You know? Somebody's doing something. If America has a weird system, somebody's benefiting from it. Okay? Now, um, the Spartan, as we all know, go to the junkiest neighbors in the city, which, of course, become slums. Often the neighborhood is simply the Mabara, which was set up near the city, and then becomes absorbed into the city. And so you have this, and within a short while, this is Kiryat Malachi, or this is Beit Shemesh of the old Beit Shemesh days, or it's a, one of a, a Zichron or any of these other places. You know, 
Kfar Saba, you name it. But, and, and, and that's how Israeli cities arose. You see? Um, who goes to the, uh, uh, the big uh, project of 52 to 56, which was the Lachish project? This was Ben Gurion's baby, Eshkol's baby. Uh, and it's a good thing, uh, but uh, the idea was as follows. Look at Israel. It's three parts. This, this, and this. The top, the bottom, and the middle. This is the Negev, of course. This is the Galil, as we all know, and they got the middle. Okay? This is actually not accurate. Between the Gaza Strip and Jordan is much narrower than this map makes it look. But it is what it is. Empty. This used to be the place of big battles in the 48 War, 49 War, Battle of Fallujah Pocket, if anybody remembers, Iraq Sawidan, you know, those kind of big battles that they had over there. It's empty. It's dangerous. The smugglers, Arabs, are going back and forth, forth and back, because it's, all you have to do is go from here to here. Back in Arab territory, here to here. And pretty soon it's not just smuggling, it's mechablim, it's terrorism and all the major security issue. Well, Ben-Gurion said the answer is simple. Fill it up with Jews. Okay? Well, okay. Who do you get? Get this one. <laughs> says Ari Eliyav is a famous person in Israel that he put together, uh, they put a lot of money into it to set up uh, 20 or 30 towns. This is Kiryat Gat, for those of you who know in that whole area, um, which is built up today. Right? But still, it's low, low, low socioeconomic level. And uh, the idea was, take these guys off the boat or elsewhere, because after all, the Ashkenazi Jews, they, <laughs> they're all, they dream up the plans, but they live in Tel Aviv, Yafel, and Haifa, and places like that. Okay? And, you know, by the way, it's not so hard to drive if you're an engineer from Tel Aviv down to the Lachish region, but then, of course, at night, come back to live in civilized conditions. Right? What about the people who say, well, you guys build your civilized conditions. Uh, see, this is very typical of what goes on in Israel. Ben-Gurion is always famous throughout the 50s who's saying, Oh, it'll get better. I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath for the day that we'll have a Yemenite, a Tamanese, the Ramad calls, the chief of the staff of the army. Which, of course, he did mean. You know what I'm saying? That would be a sign that all the glass ceilings have been broken, uh, ra- racial and ethnic equality have been achieved in Israel, um, and, you know, one day we'll see that. But meanwhile, for the moment, we'll have an Ashkenazi. Okay? And, uh, and, that, and that, that's how it goes. Um, and all the generals, all the chiefs of staff of the, of the Israel army are from Eastern European background. Right, you know, all during the first thirty years, at least a little bit more than that. The the only the first Jew of Mizrahi background, the chief of the army, I remember was in the eighties. Was it under Begin or right after Begin? Moshe Levy. Most people don't even remember him. Uh, but for, still, once again, it's like one or two out of ten. Currently, it's Benny Gantz, for example. Right before him was Gabi Ashkenazi. You know, saying these, you know, these are once again part of the syndrome that I'm speaking about. All the government ministers in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, are all Ashkenazim. Always with one exception, you know, with one token seat, or something at the most two. Uh, this guy was in, this was Ben-Gurion's token, uh, Svardi. He was a native-born Israeli, Bechor Shetri. You can tell the name Bechor is not an Ashkenazi name. And he was a minister of police forever. He had been an official, now he was a Sephardi by background, but he's Western educated. He was a police official under the British. So he has as much in common, to be perfectly honest, with the uh, guys getting, the Sephardi getting off the boat, as you know, the average, as, once again, you have these tricks and shticks over there. Uh, but it is what it is. Sadly, these attitudes, what I'm describing, also penetrated into the firm world and the, in Israel, and they still do, to some extent. Uh, under pressure, for example, from the Ashkenazic rabbinate and the Ashkenazic Tibor, when Israel became a state, there was a big uh, desire to regularize, normalize, and homogenize uh, religious practice to whatever degree possible. And the two chief rabbis at that time was the Ashkenazi chief rabbi Herzog and the Sephardi chief rabbi Abuzio, um, and they issue a bunch of takanot, 
there are laws that uh, they want to um, uh, enact in Israel, and they do, and they're all in, in trying to bring a certain harmony between the Ashkenazic practice in certain areas and the Sephardic practice in certain areas. No, they're not. They're out to make the Sephardic practice conform to the Ashkenazic practice. You understand? And Rabbi Zio, uh went along with it uh, for a number of reasons. So the most famous one is the Takon against Yibum. Uh, now, you know what Yibum is? That means if the guy dies without children, the marriage will, that's not for the 20th century, right? You know, that's uncivilized. And therefore, everybody today should agree that if such a situation happened, the Shintu, Yibum, woo, you should do Chalitza. And that way, you kind of regularize the type of situation. Well, that, that's an Ashkenazi perspective. I get it. You know, I, I, I come from that background, and so do you. But can you understand there's a different perspective? Or maybe you can't. Can you respect the fact there's a different perspective? Maybe you can't. And, um, uh, and Rav Herzog, of course, uh, predominated in this sort of uh, uh, First of all, he's a world gone. He was. He also had three PhDs. He was a, he was a very w- westernly sophisticated, successful person. I always like to share this clip if you want to get people over here about it. Drew Pearson, I think I did this last year or, or a year or two years ago. Drew Pearson, the famous reporter, went to Israel in the 50s and did a little series on religious freedom. And I was, it was Zionist propaganda, pure Zionist propaganda. It's great. And um, I wish they still had these guys on. Um, this was on television, you understand? And the point was, how's it going uh, with, with, vis-a-vis the Arabs? And they uh, interview a Herzog with his Irish accent and all the rest of here. Let's take a look at this. This is what Chief Rabbi Herzog meant when he said, Among the present strive and tension, storm and stress, rioters from Jerusalem, the prophetic summons for peace, for shalom, which in Hebrew language is one of the names of God. There is no basic contradiction between us and our, our neighbors. And there is no reason why we should not renew that cooperation uh, with the spiritual and the tropical cultural between us and the, and the Arabs of the Middle Ages. I had a most inspiring visit with the chief rabbi. He once been the chief rabbi of Ireland and he spoke Hebrew with an Irish accent. I'm going to ask you a question. How does Drew Pearson know what Hebrew's Irish accent is? <laughs> but okay. Uh, what he really means is they had Irish whiskey together, you know. Um, the, now, let me ask you a question. How come he went to interview the Ashkenazi chief rabbi, and why didn't he interview the Sephardic chief rabbi? He right, really can't speak English. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? I, I understand that, but you get what I'm saying also. And so once again, you have it. Um, in 1951, a young Sephardic rabbi created a big storm a year after these takonos were issued, prohibiting Yibam, when he, uh, Paskins, said that he's matur Yibam. He says, no, the Sephardim should be able to, to, to do this as the young Abadi Yosef. He gave it away before the right. Well, it was a little, we were all young once. And uh, <laughs> let's see a picture of you in 1951. The, uh, <laughs> or at least a glint at least a glimmer in your parents' eyes. I don't know. The, um, no, but seriously, this is, this is how he first came to public attention. Because he said like this, you're selling at our tradition and, uh, and we don't have any reason to apologize for our tradition. We're not, we're, we may be superior, we're certainly not inferior to the Ashkenazim. And if you, the chief rabbi, feel that way, speak for yourself. Don't sign on something and expect the rest of the Safari Jewry to go along just because you have the title of chief rabbi. And so it's the beginning of the tension within the firm world within the Torah world itself, in fact, within the rabbinical world. And in general, a light motif of the career of Adi Yosef is his, I mean, he just passed away, as we all know, um, 
So the historians love it when someone dies, but now you can evaluate the whole thing. And uh, uh, it's it, one of the basic, most interesting features, the most interesting, is his struggle to overcome discrimination against Sephardic rabbis and Zayanim, something he frequently mentions in his writings, even when he became the chief rabbi of Israel in 73 at that time, out of 80 Dayanim posts, which is paid for by the government, 16 for Sephardim. So it's roughly equivalent like to the Supreme Court and all that. Um, in the early 50s, the situation was much worse. It was probably, I imagine, you know, six or seven out of huge numbers. It was a member of Adi Hadai, and there was a few, but, you know, the, 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 the discrimination is quite blatant. Um, and this matter is in others. The Mapai culture has spilled over into the Edgota world. That's what you see over there. Uh, let's take a look at this. Yeah. This is when this one becomes the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv in, uh, in 68, I believe. You know, the, the guy walking with the big stick, that's all from the mandate days. You have a kawas, which walked with... In the old days, the Turks used to give the chief rabbi a, uh, what shall I say, an accompaniment. If any Arab bottle in the street, you can whack him in the head. You see? Well, that's how you keep law and order in the Ottoman Empire. What kind of the, uh, the fact that it matters, no, no. But, but, but seriously, um, the cultural uh, clashes of the type I'm describing are really very fascinating in the uh, career of Adi Yosef. Uh, it, it's in there. Let me read you uh, uh, two uh, quick passages of here. A uh, nice biography, uh, halachic biography, you might say, from uh, Benny Lau. Um, where is it over here? Seventy-four, seventy-five. Listen, li- li- listen to this. Um, uh, this has to. Well, I'll, I'll skip this one and, 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 and use the more dramatic of the two. Uh, he was. He writes in his uh, last uh, volume of the Shalos of that he had. Uh, uh, Vadi Yosef, if you're familiar, I'm sure many are, a uh, voluminous writer, right? And he wrote very long, especially Abi Amri's very long responsa, and uh, packed with information of a lofty writer and a historical one also. And just to give you an example of uh, what I'm talking about, this happens in the 50s, just at the time we're talking about over here, where, um, let's see where it is, page 129, where it's about a get, and uh, I will share with you, I'll read it to you very quickly and, and, and listen, I know you don't like to hear reading, but you have no choice. It says, um, If I read it to you out of the original tube, it's much longer. So this is, this condenses it. And it's a case, it happens to is Gitin, and life is what it is, and there's a lady who was divorced who came from Baghdad to get married to a guy in Israel in the 50s, this time. There was a great aliyah of Iraqi Jews. Most of them left in 51, but others trickled in afterwards. Okay? And here's a lady from Baghdad, and she's divorced in Baghdad, and she arrives in Israel, and she, and she already has a shidduch over there, she's going to get married. Roshim and Suin Shachach left no some base in Kabbalah short Nisuin. There was a bureaucratic snafu, and before the wedding, she didn't get the official okay document from the person who's the Roshim, the registers of, of the marriages. And Rock Regal saying, Hey, Kira, Roshan Batos, Vizmin, and Isha. And at the very last minute, he said, You're getting married today. Come and get the official form that you're, uh, you know, uh, accepted to do this. And um, they send her Mivrak Dachuf, they send her an emergency telegram to come to the court. She comes the day, the, the morning that she's supposed to get married. And she has a get. And, you know, in Gitin, they, they tear up the actual document after they write it, but they give you a, a receipt. As, as, that's how it goes. He says, they give you a receipt to testify that, that you're, you know, that everything's okay, you're divorced and you're getting remarried. And she has one, uh, stamped and, and, and with all the official 
from the chief rabbi, whoever's left at that time, from Baghdad. This is in the, in the early 50s. Um, so there were Jews left over, and believe it or not, when the Americans came, there's also a few Jews left over a few years ago, even under Saddam Hussein. I don't know why they would stay, but they did. And uh, this is in the 50s when the regime was a lot more liberal, believe it or not. Anyway, uh, so she has a get. So the two Dayanim that day, is supposed to be three, and one of them was away, I'm just remembering by heart, and the, the one of the Ashkenaz one Sephardi. The Sephardi one is Vad Yosef, and the Ashkenaz was or Shlomo Karel, so I mean, he's a, a nephew of the Chazanish, a very big Posig, I said that wrong, a very big Dayan in uh, B'nai Brak, uh, from the Lithuanian elite, the elite, it doesn't get better than that, you know, his father's Mayor Karel, it doesn't get better than that, okay? But here's the Ashkenazi, and here's the Sephardi. Now, um, so in the name of the get, and the get has to have the right names. If it's done the right names, it's a puzzle. It's one of the rules. So like anything else, it has its rules and regulations. It has to be done just so. And we take these things very seriously in the halakhic world. And so the husband's name was Victor, but it's spelled with a chaf uh, and, and with a uh, tess, I guess, or something like that. And, and the point is, it's, it's spelled wrong. Victor, excuse me, with a vav yurchaf tav vav resh. And uh, Rav Karel said, I guess, that's not how you spell it, it gets puzzle. I see from Baghdad, and then how are you going to get it? If it's wrong, it's wrong. Puzzle is puzzle. You knew it's a mistake, because you're supposed to write Victor with a kuf and a test, and another way. Uh, just imagine what happens to her if the get becomes puzzle. Okay, and it's the wedding morning. Okay? I mean, you don't get much, this is a good movie, if anybody ever makes it. Avadio uh, Seif is there, and Avadio Seif is born in Baghdad, he says, that's how you pronounce it over there. It's not wrong. Okay? You're Ashkenazi guy. You're thinking, no, this, uh, this is not Lithuania. This is not Germany. This is Baghdad. There they're Bechtar. I mean, somebody told me once, you know, like that. That's, that's how you say it. And second of all, the Av Bezin over there, the rabbi doing is a well-known posting. You know, he's not some uh, Joe Shmo. He's the official chief rabbi of Baghdad uh, where there's a Bezin system going on for hundreds of years. They know what they're doing. Okay? And... He's trying to explain to him that really it's okay to do so. Ulam Harav Karelis This is a Vag Yosef writing. He won. He was stubborn. He won't hear what I'm saying. Achas Diber Shaget Puzzle. And he says, no good. First he got another getting old then. Can we talk about another marriage? The woman hears this. She starts crying bitterly. And she begged me of Vag Yosef. said that I should speak to him, not to act like this. And the more I spoke to him, the angry he got at me. Okay. And I tried to explain. You don't understand the... Miftah Svardim Bavlim, the Iraqi Jewish dialects, and he hits you as Rucho, Vimitzilabobo, and you know, he said, You're absolutely wrong, and this and that, and it was like this. And I can tell you right now that uh, he writes over there, he says, uh, I swore I'll never go in a basin with him again, you know, and I have nothing to do with him, and it was really bitter over there. Sofa what was the end? They had to wait a while. This, this other rabbi who, who, who made the get, Shortly after it immigrated to Israel, uh, Karelis went to Yerushalayim. He spoke to him at great length, okay, and he convinced him, all right, you know, that is how they write over there, that he's not a dummy, he knows what he's doing. And he said, I'm never going to sit with you uh, again before. And um, uh, the person who wasn't there was the Abbas and the chief rabbi of, um, of uh, Petah Tikva, of Reuven Katz. Some people also might remember the Dego Reuven, it was a famous. Uh, of the old school, and a very smart person, and he, as soon as he heard what happened, he came over there, he calmed everything down, he went to apologize to the lady, and so forth. 
But I'm just sharing with you, Vaj Yosef writes this and in, 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 published this very recently in the last volume of his Shalas and Shubas, uh, volume 10, I think. And, uh, and he says, I'm getting this off my chest. That's the language he uses. This stuff has been burning on my heart for 50 years. Okay? Now, this is purely in the Torah world. You see what I'm saying? It's purely in the religious realm. It's among elites. After all, who knows him? He's getting business after all. Anyhow. And, and what was this stubbornness business? And what was this business? You don't care about the other person? It's fine. They don't know. The rabbis, the rabbonim don't know anything. They don't know the right gift. And the names are all wrong. What is, what is that? You see? Is this reality? It's culture. There's such a thing, a culture even in the from world. You see? And it, and, and it dominates and predominates, for better or worse, even in, in all kinds of uh, circles. So um, now biographies, I'm sure, will be written more and more about Avad Yosef, who's one of the major rabbis, period. And uh, I'll be interested to see if they pay due attention to this uh, side of the reality. From an Israeli point of view, the mystique of Avad Yosef lies precisely in the fact that he overcame, to some degree, the Ashkenazic rabbinic prejudices against someone like him, and he did it by sheer ability and without becoming Ashkenazi in the process. Therefore, uh, a lot of the uh, litvish, as they call it, still resent him to this day. And that's the interesting, that's the dirty fact, that's the interesting truth about uh, what you, now don't go by all the uh, articles in the Mishpacha everywhere else, you know, Achri Mos Kedoshim Amor. Now, everybody... Everybody can, can, can be politically correct all the way. He had a hard time, and he had to break 100 glass ceilings, and he did it strictly by ability. It's, the only, you know, it's, a, it's like one of these stories you read. How did he do it? He did it only by ability. He published more. He did this. He did, after a while, you can't deny it, unless you want to be just small-minded. Man, people are small-minded. I could go on and on about this, but we have a time schedule here, so I'll proceed. Here comes the interesting part. What scares Ben-Gurion and company so much? Precisely the possibility, in the 50s, that the Sephardim might get together and vote as a block, not from a pie, which is, after all, the party who created discrimination mess. And it's certainly in the 50s, and afterwards, the truth to be told, maintaining it and perpetuating it. So who are you going to vote for? Who's the Mapai? Who's Ben-Gurion? Nightmare? He's, he's afraid Begin. You understand? Why Begin? Uh, and again, I'm going to show you a clip. Begin has the reputation. What's true? Like Jabotinsky. All Jews equal. Right? It's sending the opposite message. And it has to do with respect more than anything else. You see? Because what really goes to the bottom of what we call the colonialist experience, if you read the literature, we talk, is lack of respect. You see? That's what goes to everything. And if you can't do something with somebody disrespecting you, it, it creates in you feelings. You'll see a piece about Begin. Unfortunately, I don't have this in English, but enough of you, and it's not long, but enough of you will understand the Hebrew um, to understand he's talking about the Hamiflaga Shaletet, that the dominant party is always talking about two two Judaism, two Tarbiyot, and as soon as you're talking about two cultures, what you mean is mine is good and yours is bad, mine is superior, yours is inferior, and then you'll see Begin visiting in a Sephardi family, one of the huge following in the Sephardi group over there, and they love him. You understand? And finally, and you'll see about when he's having a, a new, he chose to have a press conference in the apartment of a Sephardi family in Tel Aviv. That's the point, right? Um, and finally, and, and it concludes with the famous speech he gave in the 81 election, where he, and he screams, you know, Ashkenazim, Sephardim, Lo, Yehudim, Achim, because he said, we in the Irgun had, had people who died um, fighting for Israel, both Ashkenazim and Sephardim are both equal heroes. So once again, I'll leave it to that. <laughs> המפלגה השלטת 
ומתי זה מידה של התנסות בסיפור זה. ואני יכול לתת רחות רבות, אבל החשבות בעלי דווקא אחרות. למשל, דיבור על שתי תרבויות. מי שאומר שיש שתי תרבויות, התרבות שלי היא גבוהה מזו של זולתי. כל מה שאני חושב לאחר לומר, אני אמרתי וגם אומר, אפילו אם הדברים לא ימצאו חן בעיני הקריאים לפי נפש. בני עקרת המזרח שלנו היו לוחמים גיבורים, גם במחתרת. איינשטיין היה ממוצע אירופאי, וקוראים לו אשכנזי, By the way, I don't know if you know what that story is. There were two of the Irgun guys who were going to be hanged by the British, and they're going to, uh, they're going to, they brought a, brought a grenade, and when they take them to the gallows, they're going to blow everybody up, the British w- with them with, with the grenade. They heard that uh, Rav Herzog is coming to visit them the night before, and they told him, don't come, don't come. He said, no, I, I want to come with you at the last moment. So they, so they didn't want him to get hurt, so they blew themselves up in the cell beforehand. You see? So that's the, that's the story he's telling. Um, Anyhow, so you see that the potential was there already in the 50s that all the masses over here will vote for a begin, chas uh, v'shalom, with enough Sephardi votes, the Cherut could become the largest party, which would be Ben-Gurion's, of course, biggest nightmare. In order to prevent this, because how are you going to prevent it? There is justifiable resentment against the status quo. So how do you, how do you prevent this? Uh, the Mapai of the 1950s especially, the 60s, pulls out all the stops of Tammany Hall. Okay? In other words, party politics. I showed you this last year, but I'll remind you this is from Salah Shabbati, which is a comedy, but it's a social comedy, meaning it's making fun of it, but it's not making fun of it. And this is how politics work. You'll see in a second, they find in the story, which is a made-up story based on real events, by Fran Kishon, who grew up, who was Ashkenazi, but was in the Mabarot for a while, in the late 40s and early 50s. You find the guy who is the most influential in the group, you bribe him, and he gets the chamulai, he gets the whole friends and, and, and family to vote your way. It has nothing to do with larger pictures of social discrimination. He will get his housing. He'll bring his cousins and the others in there. That's the oldest trick in the book with, with dirty politics. And hey, go ahead. <laughs> the two Mapai guys. He doesn't understand, of course.
other party's trying to bribe him. It's the Mapam. Here's the Mizrahi party. The religious Zionists. Okay, I don't have to see the rest yourself. The point, though, is... Now, it's a, it's, a, it's a humorous, it's a comedy. I understand all that. What's really happening over there? Um, the group conditions will remain... This, the others won't get shikun. He will get shikun. Right? The other won't get a house. He will. Or, and those near and dear to him. And so you get the right people and you win them over. That's how elections were done in Israel. That's how they're done in America, too. I mean, let's face it. Democracy is a dirty business. It's better than the other systems. But uh, as I'm sure you read the papers, they have issues with funny elections going in Israel this week, and and, and in Chicago and in Baltimore. Never, you know, that, that is the way it goes. You got to re- stay really on top of these sort of things. But it's interesting that the Mapai Party will remain in power for 30 years, even though there's a profound resentment on the part of masses of voters that they're that the discrimination conditions against them by doing successfully these kind of trips. There uh, tricks. These their books are written about it and so forth. 52 to 56, the years I'm covering in this year, peak years of Tammany Hall. This is how the Mapai survived the Kastner scandal. They lost five seats as a result of that whole business I talked about two weeks ago. But they still held on to power exactly through this way. Uh, and there's one more reason. Uh, and that reason is this. Uh, Ben-Gurion was the prime minister of those years, and he had the image of Mr. Bitachon, Mr. Security, and properly so. And the public felt the Arabs, they said, I don't want to vote him up high. Ben Gurion's the only guy who can keep the Arabs out of here. I don't know what the others can do. You see? And this was the image that he projected. There is his army uniform, and he did build up the Sahal and all the rest of it. And he was, you know, he protects us. That, that, that was the attitude there. And the Mapai used this successfully in many elections uh, for a long, long time. But uh, the Sephardic voters do know that the regime is maintaining the uh, discrimination. And everyone hopes, though, it'll get better in the future, because that's how human beings are. In 52 to 56, um, the Ashkenazi Sephardi gap is even widened great, more greatly by the Shulamin, by the German money, because Germany gave a billion to Israel, 900 million. And in addition to that, Germany began what still goes on today for those who are alive, and that is they send checks to people. That means you're in Israel, you're poor, and all of a sudden you get a check every month from Germany. Let's say 30 bucks in those days in Israel, that's a lot of money. You understand? And sometimes more than 30 bucks if you lost relatives and things like this could come out to a decent. So think about a Jew in Israel. Ashkenazi Jew already had the benefit and now they're getting, in addition to the money they get from work and from the government and all the rest, imagine a, a retiree at 65. First of all, you get the Bituch Lumi, you get the Social Security, you get all the other things and you get an extra check. You know, it could be for $100 or whatever. It was, it was real money in those days and life is so unfair because as far as they get nothing because they're not part of the Holocaust. You see? And so the danger gets wider because, you know, what? The, if you're Ashkenazi, if you have an extra hundred bucks, you'll give it to your kids so that their children can go to high school. Because high school is not, is not free. Because you want to see the value of education. The, the, the maid who works for you doesn't have the hundred dollars to do that. And so the denial of the education all, all becomes a vicious circle. In the short term, there's no danger that the Friday will create their own party. Because nobody who, without education and who's still struggling just to get on their feet can never in history make a revolution. Revolutions are made up by alienated members of the elite, never by the uh, oppressed uh, minority because the oppressed people don't have the education, they don't have the organizing skills and all that sort of thing. People worried about you know, putting hand to mouth doesn't happen. After all, think about history, who makes the revolutions? Lenin was an alienated member of the Russian elites, for example. You know, that, that's how it goes across the board. George Washington, if you wish. <laughs> 
Okay? Um, but the resentment is there and festering and festering. And Israel's creating a potential time bomb as if they didn't have enough trouble already with the Arabs. Uh, but, w- but the system continues. And the dirty truth is, as I say, somebody must be uh, benefiting from it. Um, where are you going to get your maids? Where are you going to get your apple pickers? We need Mexicans. I mean, you do. And in those years, there wasn't, they could bring in workers from the Shtachim, from the Arabs, you know, the old Israel, in which whoever's in the borders are in the borders. And the Arabs themselves live, concentrate all the way up north, and because of the military regime, they're not allowed to move out of the, the place for security reasons. And so here you are, and you're in Tel Aviv, you're in Haifa, you're in Jerusalem, wherever you are, and you need uh, cheap labor. I thought Israel was a socialist country, no such thing as cheap labor. Everybody's supposed to have a national standard. Yeah, that's true, but I need cheap labor. <laughs> I mean, I get, you know, yeah, 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 but we need cheap labor. You know, and, and no, no, it's, it's very bad. The kibbutz is supposed to be built in the idea that, you know, all for one, one for all, and the dignity of labor. Yeah, but we need cheap labor. <laughs> you see? And so it's a, listen, don't laugh at it. This is the United States of America. According to the law, none of the Mexicans are supposed to get in. No president. They were very open about it. Republican or Democrat is going to enforce the law. See, they're breaking the law every day at this minute. But nobody, not Obama, not Bush, not Clinton, not, nobody. No, how come nobody wants to enforce the border laws of the United States? The, the laws they wish to enforce, like the Department of Homeland Security, they'll crack down and listen to somebody's telephone call, even if you're the Chancellor of Germany, as we saw this week. But if a Mexican guy wants to come down, and say anything. Why? He needs to labor. You see? It, 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 culture is everything. Um, well, so is this real socialism? When the, when the Mapai and the Mapam say that we want an independent economy, you know, how does the Spartan look at this? They say, yeah, right. Um, what was the worst aspect of all this? Depends on your point of view. If you're religious, you're from, you say, well, the worst aspect is that the government dereligionizes the masses through schooling. This is true. They take everybody out from uh, overwhelming traditional and orthodox or close to that um, backgrounds. And uh, when they come to Israel, uh, take off the yama, put the boys and the girls together in Israeli schools where they'll be systematically uh, indoctrinated in secularism. That, that's just, it's not a pejorative, that's just what happens. Um, this is, as a matter of fact, tonight, uh, the RZA is the sponsor. The 50s was the heroic era of the religious Zionist movement. That's when a whole network of elementary and secondary schools were, were set up uh, in opposition to Ben-Gurion. They fought for their, for their taxi, for their, um, what do you call it, the budget. Uh, basically, they're fighting for the Sephardim. Uh, I don't know if you know this, uh, this man died uh, last week, Rabbi Zuckerman, Many people don't know who I'm talking about over here. Uh, he was Mr. Ben Akiva. He started the Ben Akiva and the Yeshivot. He's a Talmud of the Stipler Rov, of the Kilis Yanko, in Europe, and in Lithuania, and in Israel. He learned with the Stipler Yeshiva and the Vardic Yeshiva in Europe, and he learned when he came there to Israel. But he uh, went for, but, but, and, and the Stipler said like this, he said, I can't have somebody making Zionist propaganda in Yeshiva. He said, I promise I won't talk about my political opinions. Then if that's it, if you're just, just here for learning, no problem. Yeah. But then when he left, he went to Kfar and the rest is history, because he made the Ben Akiva and was, was one of two others. A very modest person, wasn't interested in publicity, as you can see, that's why nobody knows about him. But if you're from those circles, you know about it. I, I wonder even if the RZA here in Baltimore <laughs> knows about this. I can only tell you uh, that he died the other day at the age of 98, and he just had the birth of great-grandson 200. No, 199. Okay? And wait a minute. And two years ago, he had a nice zechus, and that is he with four of his great-grandchildren, Meisim Ashas. Right? So it don't get better. Agreed? Um, 
But the point is that the big fights to set up, now I'm not talking about a good school, I'm talking about black hat, I'm talking about yeshiva, forget that. I'm talking about shiva tichani, uh, uh, high schools of, of more religious, but you know, under some kind of religious rubric. Ben-Gurion and the Mapai always want to put a Mapai school there. The Mizrahi always said, no, we put a Mizrahi school there. And the battles fought over this. Um, now, it's not against Israel, it's not against the government, but it's fighting for whom? They're not fighting for the Ashkenazim. The Ashkenazim by the 1950s, the religious are religious and not religious are not religious, and forget about it. It's this final. You see? And so, all these battles are going on over there. From the social worker point of view, it's the destruction of the family unit by degrading parental authority. Uh, that's, a, that's a recipe for disaster. We've done it in the United States very well with African Americans. I give you Daniel Patrick Moynihan, read all of his books, and you'll read about this, how by destroying the family unit, you create endless social problems, and very often it's broken, you can't fix it. Okay? In the Oriental Jewish communities, obviously, the father is the king. That's the way it was for a thousand years, and that's how you keep up social discipline in the family. The father says, you're going to school, you're going to school. And the father says, you do this, you do this, and you kiss the hand, and all the sorts of things that go along with that. That enables someone who has a large family and not a lot of money to maintain a, a family unit, which we all know the family unit is the most important thing. Agree? To get ahead in life. You come to Israel, the father, you can't, none of you have a house. The father is uh, look like a fool because he can't make it into new Israel. The uh, madrichim and the schools all say, I guess, forget the parents, come with us. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? And if I say, forget your parents, come with us, and we'll take you through to become an MD, at least I hear that. They say, forget the school, and only come with us, and we'll make you a worker. <laughs> what's, what, you know, what, what's that? So, from the social worker point of view, it's, it's a real destruction. And politically, it's really a hot potato. Here comes something very interesting. Um, the person who did eventually emerge as the leader of the Sephardi masses, the angry masses, was not a professor. It was not the Black Panthers. Anybody remember them from the late 60s, early 70s? They tried to get traction to represent, because the Americans had the Black Panthers, they had the Black Panthers over there. Charlie Bitton, Moroccan Jews, against the system in, in, in Golda Meir's time. But they never got anywhere. The person who did it was about your safe. It's kind of funny. And I have a very, I have a five-minute video. I want you to listen. It's in, we have English subtitles. Very important. By Chilani TV show. Chilani TV show. Who's talking about the fact that only somebody from a religious perspective like him, with his kind of religious authority, could accomplish the social revolution to add more fairness for the Sephardim in Israel. And for decades, you'll see the guys talk, you don't need to see it, and people, uh, that they've been getting the lion's share of all the resources and all the good stuff, finally we're getting a little bit, and when we get a little bit, they say the Shas is corrupt and stealing and all this kind of uh, stuff over there, okay? And you'll see a professor, Shenhav, who's not from, he's Chiloni, and he'll say, you Ashkenazim, you have the religious and the not religious and never the twain shall meet. It's not like that with us. We think of Shah Simon, I don't vote for them and I'm not Sephardi and all the rest of it. But you've got to know both sides of the story, do you not? And you see how they feel. Now, it's funny that, now here I'm talking about Avadi Yosef, not as Hagon or Rav Avadi Yosef, the famous author of the Shah and Shubas, of which of course is true, and this, that, and the other. That's for another forum. And, and that's, forget that. I'm talking about somebody here is a social revolutionary. But in, in, but in a funny way, Israel is very lucky they got him for a social revolutionary, rather than the other guys that I mentioned to you before. They got very lucky they ducked a big bullet. The person who emerged as the leader and the expressor of the resentment against discrimination was the rabbi and not the left-winger. And the rabbi channeled the resentment into positive channels. Isn't that true? What did he say? He says, 
We'll show them because we'll become better Jews than they are. We'll demonstrate by building up our Yiddishkeit, by our knowledge of Torah, and think that, that we are as good and better than that. Well, that's all. <laughs> that has nothing to do with the Arabs. You get what I'm saying? Uh, he's certainly not pro-Arab. Here's the list uh, piece I'm going to share with you tonight. When, when I'll just tell you this. Uh, when he, in 1992, uh, made the Shas Party go in and they were for the Oslo Agreement. You remember that. Uh, whatever you think about that. But he, he supported the Oslo Agreement. And at that time, Arafat and the others, they said, oh, the Sephardim are our side, and they still talk like this in the Palestinian literature, that the Sephardic Jews are really Arabs and they're repressed by the Ashkenazim, which all joined together and knocked them out. And you know what the Arabs mean by that. Um, and therefore, they gave great, 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 ooh, they gave great covenant to provide you safe. I remember his car was stolen once and Arafat said, I'll get it back for you and he did. You know? <laughs> which, which tells you a lot. Okay? Which tells you a lot. And, and all this sort of thing. And they thought because he speaks Arabic and he likes Arabic music and he dresses in that uh, you know, seemingly Arabic style, he's proud. Oh, they got the wrong guy, baby. <laughs> right? There is nobody that... <laughs> so I'll just, I, I got to show you this. Here's, they took a picture of the Simchas Torah, the day after Simchas Torah, he's composing a whole Grahman and so forth. And basically, it's Yom Simcha Yisrael, Yom Shechita Yishmael, or something like that. Or actually, Yom Tilim Al Yishmael. May it be a day of missiles falling Ishmael. And uh, you'll see over there, let's take this. <laughs> So in other words, he's not exactly pro-Arab, which is when, when they found, and, and if you ever listen to a speech that he gives on Saturday night, when he really tears in the people and curses them out, this one should drop that out, which I can show you what he said about the Arabs. As a result, they made a hit squad on him. And for the last 10 years or 12 years, something like that, now it can be told it doesn't matter, is the Shin Bet had a constant um, special unit to protect him because the Arabs were, there were a number of plots to try to take him out. That's what it is. Because the Arabs, you know, hate him now because he talks like this all the time. His spokesman, if you, I didn't want to read the whole thing, it's late as it is. His spokesman says, He's not, of course, talking about the Arab people, only the mechablim, only the terrorists. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, there you go. Now, now uh, Israel got very lucky with this. Um, it's certainly not at the challenge legitimacy of Israel. Let me bring this to conclusion. Consider if the Mapaya truly succeeded in truly secularizing the Sephardim as was the policy in 1952 to 1956. Instead of Shas, you get another pro-Arab, vicious party of Sephardim with legitimate grievances had emerged. Sooner or later it would have, such a party. And Israel would be in deep trouble. The luckiest thing they ever had is that he came along. A conclusion. Policies in the formative years of Israel led to a cultural climate which created a large and pained underclass, an angry one. Over the last 30 years, this frustration and negativity have been channeled by Shah in a number of directions, including, among other, other things, Tammany Hall politics and corruption, just like the Ashkenazi parties. Okay? Um, however, it is not channeled into an anti-Israel and pro-Arab, post-Zionist, politically correct direction. Instead, it was directed to more Yiddishkeit. Interesting. At first, the Arab observers and the PLO types tried to kiss up to him, as I told you before, but once they listened to his Motsi Shabbos speeches where he wished that Arafat should die from a loathsome disease, which of course happened, right? Where he says the Prophet Muhammad was a chamor. Where he says, naturally, the Arabs have such a leader because they're all chamorim, okay? Uh, when that happened, they put out a contract on him and he was secretly guarded uh, by the Shabak, by the Shin Bet, until his passing 
so let's do the next one. He always was out to kill him in the last 20 years. Instead, he died first from a loathsome disease, and, uh, which is self-inflicted, but I will not go into that in, in the synagogue. The, um, now, that, now that Ravadi Yosef is gone, what of the future? Well, that's already tricky. Uh, will it still keep in this kind of religious whatever direction? Or will the absence of this unique kind of leader to channel the resentment be replaced by something much more dangerous? That, my friends, is of the future. I only deal with the past. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.